I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's a big club. It's a club with big emotions where you can be successful. Yeah, what we learned now that in hard times, Maybe it's the best club in the world. Hello and welcome to Football Ramble Daily Book Club with me, Luke Moore. Me, Kate Mason. And me, Andy Grassi. Oh, that's a stop! Fehler, Tom Starke, Dortmund for 1-0. Saltano tutti, attenzione, Riedle, Riedle, ed è rete. Riedle, è gol, Borussia in vantaggio al ventottesimo. On today's episode, we venture slightly further afield and head to Germany, and more specifically Dortmund, for a chat about Uli Hesse's building the yellow wall, the incredible rise and cult appeal of Borussia Dortmund. This is the Südtribüne, the southern stands, and this is standing only, and this is very famous and very rough and very beautiful. That's right, a book about the endearing appeal of Borussia Dortmund, their status as a fashionable club who are watched not just by fans from the Ruhr region of Germany, where they're based, but by football fans from all over the world. It charts the foundation of the club, the trials and setbacks they faced over the years, including a very lean decade in the 80s, huge financial problems in 2003, and the Jurgen Klopp-inspired success they subsequently enjoyed later on. It's some story. We're excited for this. We're looking forward to it. But before we get stuck into it, Kate Mason, lovely to have you back. Thanks, Luke. Nice to chat to you. I've been sitting at home Aww. reading this lovely bit of Borussia Dortmund history and feeling a bit morose, to be honest, because as you guys know, this was my um, New Year's resolution to go to go to Westfalen Stadion, to stand in the yellow wall and to enjoy a bit of Borussia Dortmund football. But who knows when that might be possible? 
Yeah, I think this is probably the closest you're going to get to that at the moment, sadly. But it's a uh, it's a it's a more than capable substitute. Andy Brussel, my old pal, my old sparring partner, but right in your wheelhouse here. How are you, mate? Yeah, very good. Uh, no need to be down, Kate. We will get there. We talked about this, didn't we, on Jules and Andy a while back, and we will get there. And as Luke will tell you, Dortmund and Westfalen is worth the wait. And you get a bit of a flavour of that in the book, don't you? It really conveys the atmosphere, Uli Hesse. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, and and before we get properly stuck in to this episode, some further listening um, is well worth your attention. If you haven't already, um, do go back and listen to the episode of At The Match that Andy and I made um, and uh, around the end of February, we went to, to, to Germany to watch some games. I went to the Westfalen to watch uh, Dortmund play Freiburg. It was an amazing experience. It was all I hoped for and more, actually. I had no idea how noisy and how uh, dramatic it was going to be, even for what was quite a um, quite a sort of regulation win really for the home side it was still a fantastic experience and um andy also interviewed the author uli hesse for ramble meets which is another fascinating listen and that's available as well so do go back and listen if uh, this episode inspires you to go and uh, consume all things dortmund um Again, before we get stuck in, let's get the thoughts of the aforementioned Uli Hess as well, because I caught up with him earlier and I asked him what his inspiration was for writing this book. Well, um, well, one thing is, of course, it's my club. You know, it's my city. I was born there, uh, been a season ticket holder for, for, for way too long. Um, you know, um, but it's also that, um, you know, I've done a book about Bayern Munich um, before I did this book about Dortmund. And that book about Bayern is... Uh, oh, it's still a good book, of course, but it's more of a normal club history. You know, it's about, uh, uh, you know, all the big players and the trophies and everything. And then it occurred to me that uh, there was this buzz around my club, you know, Borussia Dortmund, but not necessarily because of what they were doing on the pitch. There was this buzz around the club because of um, you know, the atmosphere of the ground, the colorful supporters and everything. And a lot of people were asking me about that. You know, why are so many people coming out, you know, it's, you know, they draw over 80,000 every home game, you know, and a lot of people were asking me a lot of things that I took for granted, you know, because it's my club, but so many people were asking me about it that I thought, well, I, I should sit down and, you know, find an answer for myself and for everyone else. Right. So that's what um, Uli said was his inspiration for writing the book. Um, Andy, I'll come to you first uh, this time around, chiefly because you are someone who is very well versed in football from this country and football from this region and club. What is your first uh, impression or your first takeaway from from reading Building the Yellow Wall? Um I really liked it because what I think that um, Uli Hesse does so well in his writing and again in this book, and you might be familiar with some of his previous works, um, notably Tor, which is on the the history and development of German football. That came out, I guess, 2003. It's, it's, it's quite old now, but it's, it's lasted very well. What I think he does so well is he packs an extraordinary amount of detail into the book but it still feels like quite an easy read. Now, I don't know if part of that is to do with uh, the way he's communicating it, because something he did tell me in that Ramble Meets is the fact that, and this is remarkable to me, and maybe it's remarkable to you and to you guys listening, is that um, it's assumed that, despite his obviously excellent level of English, that he would write the book in German 
and then have it translated into English. Because as anyone who speaks a second language knows, it, speaking in a second language and writing something nuanced in a second language is totally different. But he writes his English books directly into English, which is is pretty incredible, I think. But it's something that, that really tells i think in, in this um when he's talking about dortmund as a as a city and he's talking about it being you know a, a city about the, the same size as as newport and he talks about dortmund as a club borussia dortmund as a club being um giving the the, the city this this incredible power that it wouldn't have otherwise he has all these sort of devices to convey what he's getting at in quite a chatty way to you so you're learning loads, absolutely loads on every page, but it never becomes a trudge. I, I think that's 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 in, incredibly smart, and I, I can't quite work out how he does that. Yeah, I'm with you on that, Andy, to be honest. And I guess three ways I think that he's so successful as a writer, particularly of this book, Hesse, um, the blockbuster starts to each of his chapters. Every single chapter starts in some kind of pinnacle or low moment that he conveys really beautifully. The best of those, I suppose, is the opening uh, with Lars Rickett, which I'm sure we will go in and talk more about uh, shortly. And that feeds into the second thing that he does so well, which is conveying this sense of jeopardy through the Borussia Dortmund story. The high or the low point is presented in such an immediate an immediate way you really find yourself living it for example um and and he builds that into the core into the context of the full story so he presents you with the moment and then he shows how that fits into the whole history of Borussia Dortmund for example uh the cup final loss to Bayern in 2008 and then he mentions well you know perhaps it was a blessing in disguise because Borussia Dortmund might not have recruited Jurgen Klopp as their manager without it um and then the third way is this is a story as Hesse mentions so often, this club is about the fans. Their fans are more famous than their team, you could say, Borussia Dortmund. And it feels as though he has got the perfect person, the perfect um, emotion expressed by a fan at every given moment that he wants to illustrate. So, for example, um, shortly before the cup final that I mentioned, the 2007 Ruhr derby, and... He says he spoke to Reinhard Beck today, the club's personnel manager, who says, after the second goal, I almost died from joy, uh, which is just mm. lovely as an illustration of what it's like to be a fan. And that illustrates that perfect that moment perfectly. So that's why it's such a success as a book, I think. But there's a balance, isn't there, Kate? Because d- despite nailing his colours to the mast fairly early on, he talks about his, his fan experience whilst following Dortmund. Uh, to the Champions League final in in London and enjoying it as a as a social occasion, like far beyond the actual match itself, which I think helps you feel invested in it straight away. He never shies away from faults and shortcomings and even refereeing errors, like huge refereeing errors that have benefited Dortmund over the years. He's always very matter of fact about those. And I think that that makes the that, that doesn't he only make him more approachable and believable as an author and it doesn't only make the book more endearing it actually makes the club and the team more endearing I think yeah for me I mean speaking going back on what Kate was saying about the start to 
each chapter. The standout one for me is chapter five when he uses an analogy around um, a German uh, detective show to talk about the um, the demise of the Ruhr area when when mining the mining industry essentially dries up, and then sort of references that. And 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 the reason I find that interesting is because this book is a, essentially, despite the stuff that you're saying, Andy, about how matter of fact he is and how balanced he is about the fortunate things that have happened to his club over over the years it is undeniably a love letter to the club that 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 he supports and i don't mean that as a as a negative at all i think it's a really good example of how you can love a club and talk to people about the passion that you have for the club and and bring people along with you without making uh, sort of other people who have no vested interest in it um, kind of turn away because they think it's too insular or it's too one-eyed. And because the f- the first portion of the book is essentially just a history of the club, isn't it? And, and where it sits in, in, in German football, where it sits among the area that, 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 that the club is from, et cetera, et cetera. But it does a, quite a good job, I think, of placing the football team in, con- in a wider context, which for me as a football fan is absolutely vital. I've never really been someone who watches football or likes football just because I want to build up a real bank of trivia about it or be, I mean, despite people who are listening to my output over the years might disagree, but trust me, I'm not trying to be pedantic about different facts and figures all the time. I like to to, to learn about and to think about the place the, the football sits in a, in a wider context. And I think I think this book does it quite well, actually. That's absolutely core to it, isn't it? Because that's one of the really interesting things from the perspective of a an English reader is to place this in the cultural context of of Germany as a country, the Ruhr area, you know, as a, a region of that country, and the context of how football clubs work. There's a really good description of the fifty plus one rule, which is one of the most uh, perhaps famous bits of. Um, football in in Germany that make it different from the UK uh, but also this sense he talks about it a lot that a German football club is not set up in the same way that one in England might be where it's set up as a kind of a commercial enterprise um, it's set up more to serve the local area and I think that makes a real uh, difference in how the club is seen. Yeah I think a lot's explained here isn't it uh, broadly about the the German game, which I think is really, really useful because I think the thing is about this book, it can capture your attention if you're someone who knows Borussia Dortmund quite well. There are loads of anecdotes, stories, bits of information, extra angles that will sate you if you feel like you know quite a lot about Borussia Dortmund or German football generally. But if you're starting from zero, it tells you everything about... Um, how late the German game is to come to professionalism and how that affects the development of the clubs. Um, How Dortmund and Bayern, actually, specifically, are really set back by the events of the Second World War and how the, the Nazi regime treats both of the clubs with suspicion. When you go a bit forward and you look at Dortmund's financial crisis before the financial crisis the the more recent one that people know about you know the the, the fact <laughs> yeah. that what what happened in 2005 when they went to the wall wasn't something that completely came out of the blue it was i guess the low point in a series of repetitive behaviors for the club and it sort of explains it almost as 
not the shock that you might know it as that you know a club that gets eighty thousand in every week could fall to its knees, but actually something that's pretty much ingrained in the club, but got worse and worse after after the club went public and and, and started selling shares in itself, which is a first and and is still a first for a, for a German club. Okay, I'm curious as to because I know Andy's got a very deep, rich knowledge about German football. It's a it's a particular one of the particular passions that he has. But for you, what were your impressions of Borussia Dortmund as a club before you read this book? I mean, you mentioned at the top of the show that you had an ambition to go and, and watch a game standing in the yellow wall, which of course the book is named after. But what were your impressions of, of Borussia Dortmund before and what are they now having read the book? Mm, well, Jürgen Klopp, I guess, was my gateway uh, to Borussia Dortmund when he joined the club. I just remember you started to see these little clips of this amazingly charismatic guy making all sorts of these claims he said in fact it's mentioned in the book he said something like I think we all have a little bit of a crush on this club that's sort of um it's just he's got a delightful we all know Jürgen Klopp in the UK very well now um since he's been at, at Liverpool but he was the first reason I think that I started to be interested in what was going on at at Borussia Dortmund and like Hesse says you suddenly realize that this is this huge fan movement it's very appealing German football um, to this this idea of the kind of serving the greater good which I just mentioned the way that German football clubs are set up Um, so yeah I started to just take a bit more of an interest from from the point at which Klopp became manager there um, and of course, you know, two German clubs in the Champions League final in London 2013. That was another reason to take notice of, of the Bundesliga, particularly. Having read the book, it's such a boom and bust narrative. I hadn't realised how vulnerable this club is. Andy's mentioned it a little bit, but, and I think it's part of the way that Uli Hesse tells the story that there are these extreme highs and lows. So I mentioned earlier the Lars Ricken anecdote, which opens the whole book. And I just thought that was an absolute wow moment, that that opening chapter, the preface, where he says, uh, you know, Ricken's watching on as a nine-year-old in the 1986 game that might have sent uh, Borussia Dortmund down into uh, Bundesliga 2. Um, and... And he's watching there and he says he's never seen such sorrow among a crowd of people. Um, but then at the end of the preface, he he completes it in this beautiful way by saying, well, of course, when we won the Champions League final 11 years ago, I was on the pitch. So I wasn't able to really get a sense of how people were celebrating. Um, so that juxtaposition of all of these dark moments against these incredible highs that Borussia Dortmund fans have, have experienced over the years, I think... I think you don't realise that is the case when you see a club like Borussia Dortmund who you think of as being a big club. They are a big club, but how fragile they are as well. I think that made it me really feel an affinity to them even more than I had previously. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right because, and that's what I meant, I suppose, uh, about getting a bit deeper into knowing the subject. I mean, it's like when you think of, one of the glorious high points, or the glorious high point, arguably, before Klopp, is the 1997 Champions League final. And you think of that as an absolute apex of Borussia Dortmund. But it's actually presented to you kind of the other way round, as if it's this teetering colossus that's just too stacked 
with big names, big egos, you get the sense without really has a being, I told you so, but you get the sense of, you know, they'd, they'd overspent vastly to get themselves in this position. And so rather than you looking at it as plucky Dortmund, you kind of feel a little bit closer to like Mourinho's 2010 Champions League winners, really. And I think that's really interesting part of the book, that stuff that you know pretty well, you can end up thinking about in in quite a, a, a different way. And I think going back to Kate's point about Jurgen Klopp, that's that's another thing. I think it can be tempting, especially when you know that Klopp is, you know, one of the headlines of your book. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And like Kate said, it's a lot of people's hook to to get really interested in into Dortmund. And the stuff that, you know, Hamburg didn't sign him because he was a scruff. And so Dortmund signed him in, in, instead. I, I think that's something that's that's fairly well known. But not just the way that that story's told, but the fact that you know he had to win over Dortmund fans who thought that maybe he was a, a bit of a poser or a media lovey because he was known from his performances, if you, if you like, as as a pundit and a studio consultant during the two thousand and six World Cup, and that simultaneously made Klopp famous in Germany and treated suspiciously by some regular matchgoers because they thought, well, maybe he's a media personality, not a coach. But I think the fact that not just that he did make that genuine connection with the Dortmund fans, but how he made that genuine connection with the Dortmund fans, not just by what he did with the team, but what he did to relate to people in daily life in the city. The fact that he came out to meet supporters groups before anything got off the ground you know it's getting a little bit behind the facade of you know cheery uppish bouncy clop that we know about with those little mood swings when things don't go his way on on, on the pitch we're getting a little bit more of of clop and and that's really interesting i think he does that really well yeah that that's why i think that um the, the key thing you drill down in there with, with, with clop is that's why i think the people particularly in this country who talk about Klopp uh, by by essentially um, accusing him of just being someone who acts out a character or a role, yeah, uh, and it and it's tiresome and it's not authentic. That's when their argument falls down for me, I think, because he if he was doing that, he wouldn't um, he wouldn't exhibit these quite obvious uh, moments where he loses he loses control. He's done it at Liverpool a number of times. He's done it, um, I believe, at Dortmund as well. And it's mentioned in the book, isn't it, a couple of times when he talks about, I mean, once yep. when he talked about Matthias Sammer uh, and one other time as well. But Hess has got a, got got a really got got clocked down really well actually in this. He studies it. He clearly, obviously, kind of knows him, and, and he's and he's studied him for a pretty long time. And his portrayal of Klopp in this book and what he means to the club and how uh, him as a manager is apparently a perfect fit with the club, or it was, I think, is possibly one of the most interesting parts of it. And I think it comes across really well, and it's really interesting. Klopp is obviously always going to loom large, particularly in the latter half of this book, because of what he's achieved and what he symbolises for them. But I, I certainly found those parts of the book the most rewarding, maybe because it's, it's entirely relatable because Klopp is working in the English game now and it's, it's interesting to see how he ticks and this success he's managed to achieve over and above what he's achieved at Dortmund when he's currently at Liverpool is 
is is part of that reason, I think. But I, I, I particularly enjoyed that latter part of the book, I would say. And for the English football fan as well, perhaps that's a really good bit of insight into what he's now like at Liverpool. He talks about when he's deciding to take the job at, in Dortmund, he says something about how the whole city is about this team and is obsessed with football. Another cultural point that Hesse makes is about how it used to be, you know, coal, steel, beer and football in that area. Now all of those industries are pretty much gone. So it's just football, football, football and football. Um, and Klopp really engages with that point when he's taking the job. And I think when you read that, you see, look, this is it's clear why Jürgen Klopp would have been such would have had such an affinity for Liverpool and how he would have been able to embrace a place that is is so much uh, about football. Also, really interesting to see um, Gagan pressing being developed and and the way that's being trained. The idea of training the impulse because now it's a it's very much a term that's part of the football lexicon. But yeah, it's cool to see how he how he put it together and and the early stage of how he trained it into his players. Yeah, he kind of incentivized them, doesn't he, to um, to run further, to to win the balls back quicker. Uh, it, it kind of it kind of builds the entire uh, team around that idea, and they also do a pretty good job, Andy, don't they? Of and this is something that probably is a little bit underrepresented, um, but this book makes it very clear what they also did in this more recent um, era under Klopp is they were able to bring back players or bring through players who had a real affinity with the club itself and the area, channeling that earliest point that Kate made about Lars Ricken. Yeah, and um, I, th- I think part of that, though, is is a cost thing, and that's that's acknowledged, isn't it? The fact that Klopp was yeah. doing it on a, on a shoestring, because I think that's another thing, when you, you think of the, the path that took Klopp to Liverpool. This is very helpful in that because it reminds you that A, he didn't arrive at Dortmund fully formed. And two, even though he didn't, they were kind of lucky to get him because they were just coming up for com- from completely being on their asses. And he says it, doesn't, doesn't he? In the first time he meets Uli Hesse in, I, I, I guess, the big chapter, was it chapter nine or 10, where it's about Klopp. And, and he says... Well, I saw what was happening to Dortmund from a distance in terms of the financial crisis in 2005. I didn't realise how bad it was. And then, because he was obviously coming from Mainz, who had just failed to come back up from the second tier, he said, then they made me the initial contract offer, which was less than Mainz were offering me in in the second tier. And obviously, he does one of his big laughs, and uh, well, we, we we sorted that out. But I think that's that's it. That's an t- takes us into another interesting thing when we're talking about the the globalness of of Dortmund today and how they've managed to retain that soul at, at, at the same time, which I think is one of the central themes of the book as well. Um, in the in the early Klopp years, sort of assembling a team of guys who, who got it, whether those be guys like Weidenfeller or Sebastian Kale, who stayed there before through the lean years, or when you get further down the line, um, young players like Nuri Shahin or, or Kevin Grosskreutz or, or, or players like that. It's one of those things that plays nicely in both directions and sort of acknowledges both sides of the club, the cuddly and the commercial in a way, because... Um, you know, it's, it's it's great to have those young players in there who understand the soul of Dortmund, and you know, it makes very clear that Grosskreutz, for example, who 
um, was someone who, who used to stand on the Sud Tribuna and would have walked over broken glass to to, to play for the, the the club. That he was there because he felt it, that because he got it. But at the same time, they were broke and these guys were cheap. And I think there's an understanding of that all the way through. That um, keeping it real is also a part of the it's the brand as well isn't it at the same time and i think you know despite uli has being a fan he doesn't overlook the fact that that is the case and a beautiful goal by hell and that was the liverpool defense hit by this quick counter attack and after 17 minutes of the second half held has scored for borussia dortmund Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We could call it Pete and Mark's Colossal Tussle. <laughs> but we didn't. We called it Wrestle Me. Wrestle Me, Mark. <laughs> Wrestle Me, Pete. <laughs> A celebration of all things WrestleMania and beyond. And you may be thinking, I'm not really into wrestling. Well, don't worry. There's something for everyone. To be honest, it's mainly about stuff like this. So hang on. Easy Lover was the original theme on WrestleMania. And, it was. And... Someone heard it on the radio and went, that sums up everything about <laughs> WrestleMania to me. <laughs> And this. You can really see the old back acne on test. Yeah. <laughs> and this. Is it worth reminding people of what earthquake John Tenter looked like at 23 years old? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> and this. For the record, Marty has made it very clear, and I agree and believe him, that he has never, A, had sex with his daughter, or B, wanted to have sex with his daughter. And the people behind the face paint doing the most unique job in the entire world. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wrestle Me. Wrestle Me, Mark. Wrestle Me, Beat. With 1987, What's it like to be the manager at this club, Borussia Dortmund? <laughs> what a question. Fisca finale, è finita. Il Borussia di Dortmund è campione d'Europa. 
batte la Juventus nella finale di Champions League 3 a 1. Welcome back to the book club with Kate Mason, Andy Brassel and me, Luke Moore, where this week we're talking about Uli Hesse's Building the Yellow Wall. Um, Kate, one of the other themes, we mentioned it just before the break, was this uh, idea of global dominance, but while global appeal, sorry, while also staying true to one's roots. But one part of that global appeal is the club being popular with English fans. And I asked Uli Hesse if he thought fans visiting from England were doing so because they felt Borussia Dortmund still represented something they felt had been lost from the English game. Let's have a listen to what he said. I think it's that that it's still, you know, at the end of the day, the, the, it, it's still very much a football club, an old-fashioned football club. It's, um, you, you know, you... you, you you have all this success. I mean, the club, you know, these, the, the club won the Champions League and everything. Uh, but this is very, still very much a club that, all, that although it's got fans all over the world, um, a club that still very much caters to a, to a very defined uh, community. You know, it's still based very much, not just around the city, but around certain parts of the city. Uh, and you can still very much feel that when you go um, when you go and see the club, I mean, you can find similar clubs in Germany. Let, let just our biggest rivals, Schalke, but you know they play in this shiny arena. Whereas in Dortmund, you you can really and a lot of you know you you go to the old ground, which is right next to the new ground. There is a beer garden. Uh, you, you can talk to fans in kilts there. You know, <laughs> there's a large contingent of Scottish supporters in Dortmund, and you can you can breathe and see and feel. Uh, how the team was in the 60s. I think it's a good symbol for where football is right now and where football is trying to go and where football is not trying to go. Because Dortmund are walking that that tight rope between, you know, being a rich and successful club and still being a club for a certain community. Being old, I mean, being a very modern club and being a very old-fashioned club at the same time. This is a challenge. And the club are coping well, not perfectly, but for the time being, they're coping well with, with, you know, with this challenge. Okay, so it's fascinating, isn't it? Because there is definitely a reason why a club like Dortmund, who, despite all the things that have happened and the boom-bust narrative that you guys have talked about and the fascinating story, which, of course, makes for a lovely book, they're, they're not hugely successful in global terms on the pitch. I mean, they won the, they won the Champions League back in, back in the day, as you guys have mentioned. They got to a Champions League final in 2013. A couple of league titles, including a double in there. But that doesn't explain why they're so popular, why they get 80,000 in every week. And the, the idea that English fans go over to... Um, to I mean, like day tripper sounds like a derogatory term, but you know what I mean. They go there as tourists to go and watch a game, and, and they love it. Okay, having read the book, what's your position on why that is so appealing to English fans? Hesse does a lovely thing uh, when he's talking about going to watch games uh, at Borussia Dortmund. Is he tends to say when you come to a game at Westfalenstadion, so that he's bringing you the the fan, the new fan of Borussia Dortmund. He's bringing you into the picture as well. He talks about all the things that you will do on your average day when you go and watch uh, Borussia Dortmund. I mean, in terms of history, there's a, a lot of detail about how the stand was uh, increased in size and scale and about how that terrace continued to exist as a terrace, you know, when safe standing became anathema and people weren't doing it after after Hillsborough and in that dreadful time in, in particularly English 
football. Um, the yellow wall or the tribuna as it is still and, and wasn't yet christened the yellow wall at that point, um, they kept the standing in and tried to make arrangements so that it would continue to be standing, even if they had to half the capacity during European football games, um, because you you have to have seats uh, because of UEFA laws. So they made that uh, cut in order to make sure they continued to have that atmosphere. Um, and there's a really good bit where he takes some Aston Villa fans, I think, along to a game there. And they talk about how this is what English football perhaps used to be like. It's about the atmosphere in the ground. Uh, what's so interesting early on in the book, though, of course, is that people are talking about going to games in the Bundesliga at Borussia Dortmund and they're saying, oh, yeah, this is really good because it's like English football. That was the um, initial praise that was being visited on uh, German football. So it's almost like it's it's come full circle there. Yeah, it is like you get you get the impression that things move on, don't you, during the the book. And there's there's definitely a point, and that's what it does so well, that it's not just about Dortmund, even though Dortmund are this, are this huge club and this huge presence in terms of n- not just a historically successful team, but um, a, a match day experience. I, I get the impression that that's a phrase that Uli Hesse doesn't really like too much, but but that's that's the way I guess you you, you have to describe it. And um, I agree with Kate. You, you get that impression as well that he's he's taking you along, he's taking you into the inner circle and <clears throat> giving you li- like little tidbits of advice of, of how to properly assimilate as you go along. It's like, well, yeah. If if you're in when you go to Dortmund for the first time, don't call the club Dortmund. That sounds really cold. People call them Borussia. So call them Borussia. Yeah, that really hit home for me, Andy, because I'd spent a weekend doing exactly that. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you've been saying Echte Liebe all the time as well, haven't you? <laughs> it's like, that's a marketing slogan. I know it means real love, but just don't say it. <laughs> it I was just in the club shop. I was just in the club shop. Buying your Borussia Dortmund toaster. <laughs> yeah, I've Cheats got guys mug. are fitting in. Turn up <laughs> yeah. with your but inflatable you banana, guys. <laughs> But the thing, the thing is that, that you know, the reason I asked the question at the top of this half and why I wanted to ask uh, Uli about it as well is, is because like, there, are, there are probably comparisons to be drawn to an extent with a club here like Newcastle United, for example, who clearly have a really large dedicated following, don't have a huge amount of success on the pitch, and, but they don't have this global appeal. They don't have what, what Dortmund have. And actually, all the tools are there for them to have that the same way Dortmund, Borussia Dortmund do. But perhaps the, the, the main reason they don't is purely because of what the Premier League has become and all the things that come along with the Premier League inflated prices, strange kickoff times, a separation between the fan base and the team. All that all that kind of negativity doesn't maybe doesn't exist with Borussia Dortmund and that's part of the key reason why they've been able to maintain and increase this huge appeal to to a, to a larger fan base. That's a key part of the book though, is isn't isn't it? As I was saying, the idea that um it's not about Dortmund in isolation. It's about how they're, they're they're part of German football and how different German football is in terms of fans still having influence and power. And going back to what Kate was saying about resistance to all-seater stadiums um, in the aftermath of the the Taylor report, because 
there was the sense that you know something really needed preserving i suppose in 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 the in the in the german game and um it was it was it was interesting because uh, gert niebaum the previous president of uh, borussia dortmund who uh, was there when they won the champions league but was also there um when the club nearly went to the wall in 2005 he was someone who really lobbied um against all seater stadiums and um he said there's a quote from him in the book and it says from the very beginning we have taken action against these plans because they adversely affect people with low income i don't know about you but that doesn't feel like a a discussion we have in english football very much and if it is a discussion we have in english football it's a discussion we've had way past the the point where the horse has bolted from the stable yeah and the thing that seems so amazing. I mean, the thing we can't really get to the heart of, even though we've read a whole book about this and we're talking about it now and Uli Hesse focuses most of his attention on this, is is still how how the authenticity of Borussia Dortmund manages to, to continue to exist. I mean, I think he's got probably as far as he can in trying to convey it, talking about what you're talking about, Andy, the, the context of the Bundesliga and how fan protest fans are so much more involved. Perhaps that is the angle that's the, the closest, that comes the closest to explaining how Borussia Dortmund still managed to seem authentic, even after all of these years, the way that the fans are so heavily involved, the way that people can be part of an ultra group, ultras group, and then go and become a paid up employee of the club to deal with, to to liaise with fans. So so perhaps that's one of the answers. But look, that's the whole point of why it's such a magical club and it's so worth reading about is that it's an age where football is a global juggernaut. You know, the Premier League in the UK is supposed to be the biggest, the furthest reaching brand apart from the monarchy. Um, So in that kind of an era, it's an extraordinary thing that a club from Germany, which came to professionalism so late, which hasn't had the reach traditionally that places like England have had and the UK have had, for example, or, or Spain, is managing to convey, is managing to bring people into this extraordinary and seemingly still authentic club that they've created. Yeah, and I think I suppose in terms of people who physically aren't able to visit clubs or grounds in person, then you would make the argument that the Premier League is far more popular than than the Bundesliga and Dortmund would be. And so I guess technically you could argue that a team like Newcastle or another Premier League team might on paper be more popular in quotes than Newcastle, uh, than Dortmund, Borussia Dortmund. But that's not really the point I suppose we're making. One of the answers to that question I pose might be from one of those Aston Villa fans that you guys mentioned earlier, where one of them who's who's taken to a game and and Borussia Dortmund win 3-0. And he says, um, you don't know what you've missed until you see it. You'll never get an atmosphere like that in England now. It's impossible. I was showered with beer when the first goal went in. Brilliant. I loved every second. It brought back memories of my youth on the whole end. And I think... um, I, that 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 final point is probably key because, as as Uli said at the top of this half, there's there is a, an element of of a lot of English fans going over and travelling and and and, and try, wanting to experience that. But I wondered if you guys were going to pick up on an idea I hadn't, and neither of you have so far. And it might just be me being cynical, and far be it for me to to, to, to <laughs> divert from this entirely hagiographical uh, tribute to to this book. But is it a case? Allow me this and 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 indulge me here. Is it a case 
that actually Borussia Dortmund just have very, very good branding and very, very good PR and are happy to put out a, an image of themselves that um, lends itself to to this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. The more you talk about it, the more you further accentuate it and own it, the more popular it becomes. And of course, it doesn't hurt that the stuff they put together in the club shop and everything is beautifully branded, beautifully put together. 20-odd years ago, they had that fluorescent kit as well, which was amazing from a branding point of view. Does, does that play into this a bit, do you think? And the colours are still bright, aren't they? You know, that that is a thing when you're comparing them to Newcastle United and drawing similarities between them as football cities. You know, they, they couldn't be any different, any more different kit-wise. And, and that is a big deal. I, I don't think you can get away from uh, Do you think that, that plays a part? Yeah, you? I think it definitely does. And, you know, it's something that the author himself recognises. You know, that, that bit about where he talks about why did they catch the imagination more than Bayern when... Those yeah. two clubs basically took over London for a week in in, in May June 2013, and and that's a huge part of it. Why do people respond to Dortmund more? And that is part of it. But I think you're absolutely right to say about the the way they market themselves, and I think that's totally acknowledged in the book. And the CEO Hans Joachim Vatska, um, the the author brings up um, a, a quote of his afterwards, where he says, you know, we we can't be St. Pauli who, of course, are, are another club in, I guess, in a smaller way, beloved of short-range English football tourists or short-range British football tourists. You know, they've got a Scottish supporters club, uh, St. Pauli, and they're thought of as a real, but in a very, very different way. But uh, Hans-Joachim Vatska says, well, you know what? We, we couldn't be St. Pauli because now there are 9 million fans around the world that support us and we have to be to be who we are we don't just have to keep it real uh, and they do because you know they have fifty five thousand season ticket holders if you go on their website and try and buy a ticket or say look we're going to level with you there ain't that many tickets because we need to keep it authentic to make it the best possible experience for you coming to visit as much as we need to retain our our sense of self so i don't think it's a, a case of either or and I think that's made quite clear in the book. I think they are beholden to being an elite club now. But I think they see that as a reason to keep what they are even more. It's not in danger of... I don't think their brand's in danger of making them um, stray from the path that they've always set. I think, in a way, it keeps them more honest to that. And, and that's something that's, that's pretty clear in the book. It's enjoyable when Hesse, at some point in the book, says... Uh... What exactly what the ID number of that yellow is? The I don't know. Is it RAL <laughs> color? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> color standard. It's it's. I wrote wrote it down. It's one zero two three. If anyone anyone wants to pick up a little yellow jersey to go down uh, when finally the stadiums are hopefully open. So yeah, stuff for all of the fanatics, as Andy said, as well as uh, your more general fan. Um, but look, Luke. I mean, you're you're right. Of course, this is a. A book written by a fan that's going to emphasise the positives, but you know Andy's absolutely right as well that that it's not there are warts in this account. It's not all just glorious uh, celebration of what Borussia Dortmund are doing. You know, Hesse does talk about the Borussia front and some of the very unpleasant pieces of um, of, of vandalism and aggression that that those guys uh, committed. 
but then also perhaps uses it as a vehicle to talk about the creative ways that the Borussia Dortmund have tried to to deal with hooliganism, which of course is a problem that you know blighted football for many many years. The point about the 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 access to this football being easier and greater as well is a really key one in terms of retaining the core of the of the club. I think you know this is a subject for debate in the UK that we see often, but. As you said, the horse has pretty much bolted on that front. You know, people are still able to go and watch uh, Bundesliga football for a very small amount of money comparative to what you can do in in the Premier League. And they've managed to really fight against Monday night football because, as Hessa points out in the book, you know, if you wanted to be an away fan going to a Monday night game, you'd have to take two days off work. Just not mm. that convenient. Um so these are still things that lend themselves well. I'm not saying I can explain, as you're saying, why it's Borussia Dortmund in particular, you know, who are in fact the second most watched, foot, uh, not football team, sports team in, in the world in terms of footfall. It's extraordinary. <laughs> They've created something absolutely that defies, defies explanation, really. Mm. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I don't want people to think that I'm suggesting that in some way having great branding is is a bad thing and is kind of somehow inauthentic in terms of your appeal as a club. I just wondered if perhaps if if, if, if you're going to set out to write a book about the incredible rise and the cult appeal of a club, maybe a, an interview with some kind of branding expert or working out who did the branding and what they. Right what they thought about and, and whether it's been a conscious decision just would have been interesting because clearly we know how important PR and branding and, and positioning yourself is in modern football. And that would have been a nice juxtaposition against all the other completely um, no less authentic um, aspects of the club that are, that are, are, that play, that play a role as well. Well, Luke, if, if you wanted to do that, I mean, you just tune into Ramble Meets with Carsten Kramer, their marketing director, wouldn't you? Which, uh, <laughs> Gives you a bit of a bit of a view on that. Have you got my notes in front of you? <laughs> Always have, on duty, Andy Brussel. I love it. I have <laughs> I eyes that everywhere. That's going to be part of my outro, but you've done it. You, you, did, the, you did the interview, so it's only fair you get to plug it, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> boys, but I, I, think, I, I think the point about um, people who never get to go to see the games is... Is, is an important one that's that's worth addressing, especially when you're talking about in terms of their their global appeal, because you know we can try and separate the match day experience from the televisual ex- spectacle, but I sense that when football gradually restarts um, after the current hiatus, probably first in the Bundesliga, as as it as it happens, we're going to find out just how important the crowd are to the televisual experience. And that's something that I think German fans have grasped that maybe English fans have have struggled to grasp a little bit. That the fact is, TV may be putting in all the money, but you, the fan, television needs you. Football looks shit without anyone in the fa- in, in the stands. And that is a massive big deal. And it's a massive reason why not just Borussia Dortmund, but the Bundesliga is growing and growing as as a global brand. The fact that they can bring like large elements of that match day experience, the noise, the intensity, the closeness of the crowd into your front room. And, you know, the thing that we've touched on, but not really mentioned in the context of why Dortmund are so entrancing internationally, not just about Klopp or the colour of the kit, or the pluckiness of that team that he made win the Bundesliga in 
2011 and 2012 and then got to the final of the Champions League in, in 2013. It's, it's, it's the Sioux Tribune. It's the yellow wall. That is something that every time you see Dortmund play in the Champions League on television, every single time, whether you've been to the stadium once, 10 times, or never at all, and you're never likely to go, you look at that on your television or your computer at home and you go, holy shit, look at that. Dropping the S-bomb there, Brassel, trying to liven up the edit, or are we? Um, just as a side point to that, this reading this book um, took me a lot longer than it probably should have done. I don't know if you guys, guys found this as well, but maybe one, hopefully for people listening, um, I found myself watching a lot of old clips of football that Hesse was re- referencing in this in the story. And in particular, the... Because I know we've been talking quite a lot about the more modern-day um, Borussia Dortmund games, but uh, the, cup, the Cup Winners' Cup final win against Liverpool, there are some absolutely awesome... From 1966, there are some absolutely awesome highlights online, which, I mean, maybe I'll tweet, but um, just incredible Reinhard Labuda goal. So... You've got all that to come as well if you're sitting at home just desperate for football and you've already watched the whole of Euro 96 or whatever else (laughs) it is that's been on recently. Um, The clips are amazing, partly because the goals are pretty amazing, Um, particularly the Labuda goal, but also the Hell goal is great in that as well. And the commentary, ladies and gentlemen, is just fantastic. And the lights was put his flag down. And it's an equaliser by Hunt. But no doubt about it, the linesman had his flag up. And as soon as the ball went in it, and the Liverpool fans have invaded a pitch in the hundreds. Well, I complimented the Liverpool supporters on Saturday for not invading the pitch. And now look what they've done. They're crowding round Roger Hunt. Let's sum up then. Okay, what do you what did you what are your kind of closing remarks on this book, if you if you like? Then what 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 do you take away from it? What's your summary? I think it's a really tightly written account. Um, I think it carries you through. At the top of the of our chat, I mentioned this: the way that the peaks and troughs are really really well identified, and you really, I, I think it's brilliant writing. The way Hesse makes you feel as though you're a part of the struggle for the soul of of Borussia Dortmund. Um, so the way he conveys drama through the story of, you know, just one football club. And I would hope that people who, friends of mine who maybe don't ordinarily read football books, I think there would be something for them in here as well, partly because of the the quality of the writing. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the, the social context of it is really important. And any book that's about a club or a footballing nation. And it is about a footballing nation. It's not just about Borussia Dortmund. That's the thing that I like most about this book because it it provides, it needs to provide some social context. And it does that both for the region and for the, for the country pre and post war, pre and post professionalism, which is something a lot of people might not be aware of, might not be aware of in terms of German football. The fact that, um, you know, they, they, they didn't have a, a proper professional league until 1963, which makes the, the Cup Winners' Cup final that Kate was talking about even even more remarkable. Um, I think if you're a Dortmund sympathiser, it will make you love the, the, the club even more. Um, but I would like to think that if you're reading it, it would it, w- it would make you more more interested in 
in German football and more appreciative of the fact that a lot of the the mistakes that both Dortmund and the governorship of of German football have made over the years is because it's it's, it's such a, a young professional game. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, that's building the yellow wall, the incredible rise and cult appeal of Borussia Dortmund by Uli Hesse. It's published in 2018 by Weidenfeld and Nicholson and was the winner of the 2019 Telegraph Sports Book of the Year Award. Okay, on behalf of Kate, Andy and myself, thank you very much for listening to this Football Ramble Daily Book Club episode. Make sure you hit subscribe wherever you get your podcast to ensure you never miss a Football Ramble Daily episode again. And if you want to contribute further, patreon.com forward slash Football Ramble Daily for lots of extra bits and pieces and exclusive content and all that good stuff. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time. was a Stakhanov production. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.